read a little bit here as we get ready to go through Second Peter. How many of you love the Word of God? Do you love the Word of God? I do. The more I live life, the more I love the Word of God. It is so good. We're going to really be looking at this Word, uh, this Bible that you hold in your hand. Everybody that's got your Bible, let's just hold it up. Do you know this is the Word of the living God? This is the Word of the living God. And tonight we're going to be, uh, Peter is going to be putting our attention on this Word, especially in the second half of the message. But I want to talk to you about finishing strong. How many of you would like to finish strong? I mean, finish your race strong. Not dragging across the finish line, but strong. All right, let's pray together. And I want you to pray with me that God will open our eyes and open our understanding tonight and feed us from his word. Pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I open my heart to the word of God. Speak to me. I receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save my soul. Amen. Tell your neighbor it's going to be good tonight, and you can be seated. How many of you were not here Sunday morning? Anybody here not here for whatever reason? Boy, we had church. Tell you, we had church. Not that I'm saying you missed anything to make you feel bad. I'm just telling you, you missed something in order to make you feel bad. But, no, it was good. Let's, uh, let's look at this now tonight. Last time, we saw that the way to partake of the divine nature of the Lord Jesus is by way of the exceeding great and precious promises found in Scripture. Now, the intention of God for every one of us who are believers is that we would partake of the divine nature. Now, what a powerful, powerful thought that we could be partakers, sharers in the divine nature of Jesus Christ. His love, His joy, His peace, His authority, His long-suffering, His gentleness, His meekness, His kindness, His faith, that we could share in the nature of Jesus. And uh, Sunday we were sharing that this is God's ultimate will for every believer. This is what Romans 8.28 and 8.29 promise. He's going to make all things work together for the good, for those who love God. And what is the good? The good is that we would partake of the divine nature. How do you do it? By, partake, by the exceeding great and precious promises. It means by faith laying hold of the exceeding great and precious promises of God that are found in Scripture. And there's thousands of them. We ought to go treasure hunting every day for a promise to lay hold of and just believe God for it. It's full of them. Now, having come to Christ through faith, Peter said, here's what you do. Give, giving all diligence, that means you work at it, add to your faith. How many in here have faith? All right, didn't James say faith alone is dead? Faith without works is dead. But now, he said, now that you've got faith, having come to Jesus for your salvation, now that you've got faith, add to it. Now, here's a real thought. This is revolutionary. Because a lot of you say, well, you know, as I go on with the Lord, uh, the fruits of the Spirit are just going to grow in me. And they do. But here's, here's another thought. That you can take love as you see represented in the person of Christ and add it to yourself. I mean, you're driving down the highway, somebody cuts in front of you. They make you angry, the flesh rises up in you. And what does Peter come along and say? Stop a minute and add to your faith love. So do you get that by faith we appropriate the nature of Christ? That's what he's saying. Add to your faith virtue. To virtue, add knowledge. Well, knowledge isn't going to be dropped into your brain. He's not, God's not going to pull the top of your head off and drop knowledge in and then close your head back up, is he? How are you going to get knowledge? You've got to read. You've got to listen. You've got to study. But he says, I want you to do it. Add to your faith. 
virtue, knowledge, self-control, add it. To self-control, add perseverance. To perseverance, add godliness. To godliness, add kindness. And to kindness, add love. Add them. Just add them. By faith, make them your own. Reach for it. Now, the word diligence, he said, giving all diligence, add to your faith, conveys the idea of zeal and haste. It means we are to exert ourselves and make an effort. Catch this now. God saves us by His grace, but guess what? Let me back up just a little bit. It means we are to exert ourselves and make an effort to grow spiritually. And so to do that, man, you, you are exercising your faith and you're adding. Now, you're, you're not saving yourself, for that's been done by the blood of Jesus Christ. But to grow in grace, to grow in His likeness, we add to our faith. We add to our faith. We are to cooperate with the Holy Spirit's work in our life by responding in faith to His call to maturity. See, the Holy Spirit, you know, you'll be prompted in your heart when you get up in the morning. I want you to get into the Word. I'm calling you to prayer. Why don't you pray for a few minutes and get into the Word of God? That's the Holy Spirit. Well, then I must obey and cooperate and add to my faith. So there is a, there is a time when God saves us only and solely by grace. But having done that, God says, now I want you to cooperate with me. And I want you to grow in grace. Paul the Apostle said it this way, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The only workout some people know is going to the gym. The only workout a lot of Christians know is to go to the gym. But guess what? Paul said, in your spiritual life, you got to work out. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now notice, he does not say, work towards acquiring your salvation. Does he? And he doesn't say, work at your salvation, does he? No. Nor work up your salvation. He doesn't say that. Every true Christian has been saved through believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what he's saying. I want you to work at becoming more like the Lord of your salvation. And to do that, you've got to add to your faith. So I add to my faith, patience. How many of you can say patience hadn't come naturally to me? Right? The flesh is extremely impatient. So there you are, you're feeling impatient, you're in a situation that's, just, that's really testing your ability to be patient. And what does is, what is the Word of God say? All right, in this situation right here where you're being tried and vexed and tested, just reach out in faith and add to your saving faith the patience of the nature of Jesus Christ. You add it. Say, I put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I put on love. I put on patience. Boy, y'all are staring at me like a calf stares in a new gate. <clears throat> See, the bottom line is we don't like to have to work at it, do we? But bottom, here's the deal. God's called us to work out our own salvation. Work out your own salvation. You add to your faith. What is it of the fruits of the Spirit you really need? Well, I'm really waiting, Pastor Jeff, for patience to become a part of my life. Well, quit waiting and add it. Just add it. This is spiritual addition. This is spiritual arithmetic. Add it. Well, you know, I just wish I was more loving. Well, quit wishing and add it. Well, how do I even know what it is? Watch the Lord Jesus Christ. Study His life. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. If you've seen me, you have seen God in action. So what you, you study the Lord Jesus Christ, how He cared for people, wept over the hurting, reached out to those that were in pain. You study the Lord Jesus Christ, and what you see in Him, you add it. You make it your goal. He is your desired image. And then you add it. What is it that you really need at home? Isn't home where you're really, your character is tested more than anywhere else at home? Boy, a bunch of you, amen. Boy, that is true. I know that's right. It is right. You got you to walk with God at home. So what is, it that, what is it that you really need at home? Is it patience? Is it love? 
Is it long-suffering? Is it gentleness? Is it kindness? Saying kind words? The Bible says, add that to your faith. Work at becoming more like the Lord of your salvation. And this is what Peter is encouraging us to do by adding virtue, knowledge. Let's read these together, can we? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love. He says, any one of those, you by faith can add it. It's like decorating a Christmas tree. Whatever you want on that Christmas tree, you reach down into that box of bulbs, and you pull one out, and you put it on the tree. It's an action you decide to do. All right, what is it in your life you need? The Bible says, reach into the box of the fruit of the Spirit, by faith pull it out, and add it. Hang it on the tree. For he who lacks these things, this is a powerful verse, he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness. He who lacks what things? The things we just read. He who lacks those characteristics of Jesus Christ is short-sighted. He's talking to believers now. If you lack those things, you're short-sighted even to what? Blindness. And you, what has happened to you? You have forgotten that you were cleansed from your old sins. See, people who begin walking in the flesh, Christians who have put their faith in Christ, but now they're walking in the flesh, they're short-tempered, they're impatient, they're unkind, they say things that are unkind. You can't tell the difference between them and somebody in the world. The Bible is saying that what's happened to that person is they have forgotten that they went to the foot of the cross and were saved, that they were redeemed from their sins, transferred from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. They have forgotten and he's, he's talking about the professing believer who fails to exhibit these characteristics, these things that Peter said must be added. He is the perpetual babe in Christ. This person had never grown up. Now let me tell you something. If I, if I, if me and Kathy, years and years ago when we had a baby, and I, you know, I, I brought this baby in here, and the baby was crying and saying, Dada. You would say, oh, how cute. Look at that little baby saying, Dada. He wets his diaper. He needs to be fed. He's such a cute little baby. But if 20 years later, he came in and walked up to me and said, Dada. Feed me. You'd say, something's bad wrong. Peter's saying, if you're not walking in those things after a while, something is bad wrong. You're an adult chronologically. You've been saved for years and years, and you're still walking around going, Dad, Dad. Church is full of them. Churches are full of them. They've never grown up. They've never grown up. Well, Pastor, then what can I do? Add it. Add it. Start adding it. <laughs> Just for the radio, everybody say, Dad, Dad. See, yeah. no, no, no. We want somebody walking in going, I understand grace. I understand faith. I am walking with Jesus. I'm full of love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, and faith. Against such there is no law. I have grown up. <laughs> I tell you, it's real. They've never grown up, those people. They've never learned to walk by faith, and they're living carnal lives instead of spiritual ones. Churches are full of them. And then Peter says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. What does he mean by that? He's encouraging us to take a fresh, objective look at our profession of faith. We're encouraged to be certain we have the real thing. What did Paul say in another place? In another, in another place in the Word of God? Paul said, examine yourselves and be sure that you're in the faith. Peter's saying, you need to make sure you've really got the real thing. Not religion. Not a New Year's resolution. Not rehabilitation apart from Christ. But you have been genuinely born again. I'll never forget the words of Billy Graham. I heard him say it. 
The church is the greatest harvest field in the world because it's filled with people who think that because they've gone to church on a Sunday morning, they're saved. Or because they're involved in some activity in the church, they're saved. But this is not, and I'm, I'm not saying these things to make anybody in here insecure. Uh, if you're saved, you know it. I mean, you know it. Your spirit witnesses with God's spirit that you are a child of God. But Peter is saying, I want you to be sure you've got the real thing. The word sure means to be firm and steadfast. There's no room for uncertainty as to whether we're genuinely saved and in the company of the truly saved. I guarantee you there are churches, there are, there are buildings with church on the front of them where the gospel is never preached, where there is never an altar call, where the name of Jesus Christ is rarely mentioned, if ever, where if you get saved, it's by mistake. It's not on purpose. They don't lift up Christ. They don't worship God. But there's church on the front. And don't you know, lots of people go in there and say, well, you know, uh, I, I must be saved because I've got this interest in religion. No. No. Jesus said you must be born again or you'll never see the kingdom of God. And Peter is literally saying, I want you to be certain that you have got the real thing. Now, he says, if you do these things, what things? Add to your faith all of those characteristics we named. If you do these things, if you're always working at this, read it with me, what will happen? You will never stumble. Some versions say fall. You will never fall. If you're always, when you get up in the morning, you're going, man, i got to add to my faith Virtue. I've got to add to my faith patience. I've got to add to my faith self-control. I've got to add. Man, I'm busy about my spiritual growth. He said, if your focus is on your spiritual growth, you don't have time to stumble. And if you're really working at it and you're growing spiritually, he says, an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you keep adding to your faith things that accompany salvation, the things Peter just told us to add, there will be no occasion to stumble. Stumble is from a Greek word meaning to sin, to err, to transgress. It's the, it's the Greek word scandalon. We get scandal from it. We get scandal from it. And what it means, a scandal... When you fall, when the, when the Scripture uses that word scandal, it's a picture of somebody walking down a sidewalk. They're not looking where they're going, and their foot catches on something, and they stumble, they trip, and they fall flat on their face. They didn't see it coming. That's the word scandal on, stumble. And he's, he's saying the life that is always in pursuit of Christ will not have a major scandal. But if you let go and you get distracted by other things or you get spiritually burned out or any one of a number of things that can happen to get your eyes off of him, yeah, you can sure stumble. And you better know you can because you can. He's not saying we're going to live a completely sinless life. That's not what he's saying. You'll never fall. That, that doesn't mean you'll never make a mistake. He's saying that we will not fall back into a sinful lifestyle as before. That's what he's saying. You won't go back into that old life of sin. It won't lure you. It won't coax you. It won't tantalize and tempt you. This is what John meant when he wrote in 1 John 3, 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. I used to read that and say, well, I must not be saved. Because he said, look at that. I'm not supposed to be sinning at all. And how many of you can say, I've sinned at least once this year? I'm going to know if I'm talking to human beings. I've said something, thought something, done something. Watch this. He, he means whoever abides in him will not walk in a sinful lifestyle. That's what he's saying. So add to your faith virtue, self-control, and all of those things. And you will not end up in a sinful lifestyle. For this reason, says Peter, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, 
though you know and are established in the present truth. Now I want you to notice in the middle of that passage the word remind. Because we could almost call Peter the apostle of remembrance. The apostle of remembrance. Because one of his drumbeats is always, I want to remind you. I want to remind you. Can I remind you? Let me remind you. He's always saying, I want to remind you. I want to remind you. I want to bring to your memory. I don't want you to forget certain things, so I'm going to remind you. Though you already know what I'm going to say. So he's saying, what I'm doing is I'm repeating what you already know, but I'm going to keep on repeating it. You know what preaching is? It's the fine art of saying the same thing a thousand different ways. That's what it is. Repetition is the way most of us learn. Peter, anybody in here got a photographic memory? That's what I thought. <laughs> most of us need repetition to learn, don't we? So Peter acknowledges that he was not telling his readers anything new. I'm not telling you anything new. I'm reminding you by repetition. Because I know if I say it enough, you're going to get it from your head to your heart. So the word negligent, he said, I'm not going to be negligent in reminding you. Negligent means to make light of something or to be careless. Peter says, there is no way I'm going to be careless with you. No way. You're going to hear it from me repeatedly until you get it. I can tell you as a pastor, there are certain things you're going to hear from me, and if you stop and think a minute, you can think of things I say all the time. Repeat, repeat, repeat. And sometimes some of you look at your watch and say, man, I've heard this before. But you know what? There are, there are things I have in my spirit and soul that you're, if you are, stay here, you're going to get it. And you're going to get it down in your innermost innermost. And I'm never going to let it go. Some of it we're going to cover tonight. But uh, I've, there's, I've got certain soapboxes that I just harp on all the time. Because you're going to, you need to be, I need to be reminded. So he says, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent. Look at your neighbor and say, you got a, you got a nice tent. <laughs> Isn't that a funny way to put it? I'm going to get calls from the radio on that one. Don't say to your fiancé, what a beautiful tent. Don't say to your spouse, boy, nice tent. No, no, no. But Peter called his, and what, what is a tent? It's a temporary abode. To Peter, the body was just a temporary hotel. Okay? He's saying, as long as I'm in this tent, <laughs> I'm going to stir you up by reminding you. There he goes again. Remind, remind. The goal of Peter's constant reminding what was he after? To stir them up. That little phrase comes from a Greek word meaning to make somebody wake up out of sleep. Now, remember when Paul told Timothy, I want you to stir up the gift of God that's within you? Remember that? That's a different Greek word. That Greek word means to fan an existing flame from a flicker into a fire. But this word is different. He says, I want to stir you up. But he, this word means waking somebody up out of sleep, spiritual sleep. I'm reminding you because you have a tendency to go to sleep spiritually. So I'm not going to let you go to sleep. Most of the church is asleep in the light. Most of the church is asleep with the lights on. He says, he says exactly the same thing in chapter 3, verse 1 of 2 Peter. We'll get to it later. He said, Beloved, I now, I, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of, which, both of which, both letters, I stir up your pure minds by way of what, everyone? Reminder. So he's reminding them, reminding them continuously to keep them from going spiritually asleep. Lose your zeal, lose your fire, you cease being concerned about the things of God. You begin to drift. You drift out of church. You drift out of prayer. And Peter says, no, no, no. Listen to me. I'm going to remind you of the truth that originally woke you up. And I'm going to wake you up again. Reminding them of the call of God, the grace of God, and the purposes of God. Woke them up out of spiritual slumber. How many of you can say, there have been times in my life I went to sleep spiritually, and I ended up in church somewhere, and I heard the word of God, and boy, it woke me up again. Come on, let me see you. 
This is one of the great functions of the local church. This is why we need local church. People say, no, nah, you know, I, I, why should I have to go to church? I just stay home and I watch my favorite preacher on TV. You know what? You can't touch that favorite preacher on TV. You can't touch or talk to the congregation that the TV show is showing you. You can't get in there and talk with them and fellowship with them and have communion with them. You can't share your problems with them. You can't get to know them. They are images on a TV screen. I hate to break it to you, but you cannot say that television, going to church on TV, is nearly as good as going up in the flesh to church and being wakened out of sleep. And I know some people listening, particularly by radio right now, are saying, well, but pastor, I can't get to church. I understand that. I understand that. But I'm saying for the most part, we need to be in church. I need to hear from you. You need to hear from me. We need to chat. We need to talk. We need to fellowship. We need to have communion together. We need to, to one another one another. Right? So, when we hear God's Word, we are awakened and stirred with fresh zeal. And now here comes Peter dropping a sobering word on them. Here's what he says to these folks. Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. What's he saying to them? He said, I'm about to leave this place. This is, remember Paul in 2 Timothy? How he tells Timothy, I'm about to go home. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord is going to give to me. What did he know? He knew that shortly Nero would have his head taken off, and he was martyred. Now this is Peter's second Timothy, and he's telling us, I'm about to go home. He's telling his readers, and this man, Peter, was loved by these people. He was the initial foundation of the church. He was the brightest light in his time of any other believer in the early church. He walked, as we talked last time, walked down the street. His shadow healed people as he went by. He was incredibly anointed, but the people loved him. Remember when he got thrown in jail and they prayed him out? Weeping, crying. They didn't want anything to happen to him, but now he knows. Now here's the deal. Peter had known all along he was not going to be caught up in the rapture. To meet the Lord in the air, he was destined to die. He'd known from the very beginning that he would be a martyr. He knew. Jesus had told him so. Remember that? Simon, Simon, he said, I'm telling you, the day is going to come where they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And they're going to do to you what you don't want them to do. Remember his reaction? He turned around and looked at John standing there. He said, what about him? Thanks for all this good news for me. It's not fair. What about him? What did Jesus say? What is that to you? You follow me. My call on you is not the same as my call on John. John's the only one of the 12 that was not martyred, lived to a ripe old age. It was the call of God, the purpose of God. But he had told Peter, you're going to be martyred, and I want you to know that. Now follow me. That's a heavy word. Tradition holds that, and this comes not just uncertain tradition, but from the church fathers and some pretty reliable people down through history, that Peter asked to be crucified upside down. Because as one who had once denied the Lord, it was not fitting that he be crucified the same way Jesus was. And there's one or two of the early church fathers that say his wife. Remember when Jesus healed his mother-in-law? Peter's wife was martyred in front of his eyes. And they were both taken. By the time Peter wrote about his death here, it was already on the horizon. He used the word shortly when describing his departure. This is from a Greek word meaning at very short notice. At very short notice, I'm going to be taken. Peter knew that with the, the neuronic persecution, persecutions of Nero, reaching its crescendo, 
that he, one of the chief apostles, could not expect to escape much longer. Now, I'll tell you, I would not want to be Nero at the judgment because under Nero, Paul was martyred. Peter was martyred. James was martyred. I mean, you talk about having some blood on your hands that you don't want on your hands. And so it happened. And he said, until I'm taken, which I know is at very short notice, you're going to hear soon that it happened. Moreover, I'm going to be careful to ensure that you always have a what? There he goes again. A reminder of these things after my decease. Now the word decease here is so powerful because it's not the way we look at it. It comes from the Greek word exodos. Exodos. And it means a way out or a departure. Now in America, with a lot of people, Darwinian people, the, those that believe in evolution, when you die, you just go back to the dust and that's it. You live, you die, that's it. Back to the dust, you return. There's no afterlife. But that's not the way they saw it. He used the word exodus, which means I'm going to depart for another place. It's the word used to describe Israel's deliverance from Egypt and their journey across the parted Red Sea. When Moses led those people out of Egypt and he held out that rod and the sea parted and they walked across it, as on dry land, they didn't just cease to be, they had an exodus. They left one place for another place. They left Egypt for the promised land. And that's the word Peter uses for his departure. He said, I'm about to have my own exodus. Amen. And it's also used of Jesus' own death in Luke 9, 30 to 31, as Moses and Elijah spoke with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. It says, And behold, two men talked with him. Now Peter is talking about this. He's quoting this. He's discussing this. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. This is Jesus on the mount. And they appeared in glory and spoke of his what? His decease. And the, the word used is exodus. He's about to leave this world for another one which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter was facing his own exodus. There was nothing for him to fear. The Lord had already led the way through a deadlier sea, through death to life. So he was ready. He was ready to make an exodus. And you know what, saints? When you die, if we miss the rapture, if I die, we don't just go back to the ground and become nothing, but we, we go from one place to another. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. It's an exodus from a lesser place to a greater place, from a nominal place to a glorious place. That's what it says. And that's why the Christian is not afraid of death. Now, he's made up his mind to make the most of his remaining time on earth to write things down for a reminder to God's people. Now, Peter now changes the subject. He's talked about our walk with God. Now he talks about the Word of God. And I want you to hear this. Now here's one of my drumbeats right here. This is one of them. He's going to begin talking about the integrity of the Word of God. Can you hold your Bible up again? Let's just hold up this Word of God, this beautiful Bible, 66 books of God-breathed words. Okay? Now Peter is about to make sure that they understand that this is the Word of God. So let's look at what he says. He begins talking about its integrity. He says, We have not followed cunningly devised fables. This is not a book of myths. This is not a book of mythology. This is not a book of Brothers Grimm fairy tales. No. Fables comes from the, the word muthos, from which we get the word, of course, myth. And the story of Jesus, Peter is saying, is fact. It's not muthos. We have not followed myths. We have not followed a fairy tale. We have not followed a pack of lies to make you feel better and better able to deal with life. That is not what has happened. It was not a myth that delivered you from drugs. It was not a myth that set you on the path of righteousness. It was not a fable that got you in church. 
It was not a fairy tale that changed your life. Can I have an amen here tonight? The virgin birth, the Lord's sinless life, the matchless teaching, the atoning death, the burial, resurrection, ascension, and promised return of Christ are all sober facts. He did still the storm. He did walk on rolling waves. He did feed great crowds with a little boy's lunch. He did cast out evil spirits. He did cleanse lepers. He did give sight to the blind. He did heal the sick. He did raise the dead. These things are not like the man-made fables of Greek mythology. They are facts of history. It happened in time and space in the real world. He said, we weren't giving you cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Now the word coming there, the coming of Jesus Christ, is from the word parousia, parousia. We find it 24 times in the New Testament, parousia, and it refers to both comings of Christ, both of them. The first coming of the earth as a baby born in Bethlehem, the second coming that's about to take place. The word was often used technically when it was used in just common Greek language. It was used for the arrival or visit of the king or the emperor. It literally points to an arrival and a resulting presence because of that arrival. In the above context, it refers to the second coming of Christ because the first coming had already happened. And Peter had also taught them about the power, Greek word dunamis, of the Lord Jesus. Dunamis speaks of unhindered, untrammeled, unstoppable, unequaled power. That's the power of God. Man, I'll tell you, I could almost preach here tonight. I'm about to wind up. Because this stuff is, is what changed our life. And it was not a fable. It was not a myth. Uh-uh. No, no. The Lord will come again. He's going to come again with unequaled, unmatched, unstoppable, overwhelming power. That's what he's saying. Peter goes on to testify that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Hey, on the way here, uh, there was some traffic because there was a wreck right at one of the exits. Um, doesn't matter. It was, it was a wreck. Anyway, there were people that heard about it. We heard about it on the radio, and we got a phone call told us what we were going to encounter, but we heard about it. But there were people tonight who saw it happen. They were eyewitnesses of the wreck. They were behind the cars, around the cars, and when it happened, they watched it unfold. Peter is saying, I'm not telling you something I just heard about. It's not something I just heard about. Oh, no, I was an eyewitness. I saw it with my own eyes. I saw this. I'm telling you what I saw. Many people had seen Jesus' power in action. Many had received of his goodness and mercy. But only Peter, James, and John had gone up to that mountaintop, to the Mount of Transfiguration, and seen something that was veiled from all other human eyes. His glory and his majesty. What happened to Jesus up there? Peter goes on to describe the event. He says, For he, Jesus, in front of me, I was an eyewitness. He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice, such a voice, came to him wherefrom the excellent glory. And what did that voice say? Read it with me. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Ooh. That's powerful. That's what the voice said. Now, before their very eyes, Jesus had been transfigured. 
I believe the Greek word is metamorphoumai. Metamorphoumai. And what do we get from that? Metamorphosis. What's it talking about? A radical change. What happened to Jesus? He changed in form. That is, his face, the Bible says on that mount, began to shine like the sun. Can you imagine being these three fishermen sitting there? Jesus takes you up, says, now sit there, fellas. Hang on just a minute. And as he stands there, suddenly, he is metamorphoumai. That is, he is metamorphized. He, he is changed in front of their eyes. They are eyewitnesses. His garments began to blaze as white as the light. His face shone like the sun, and suddenly there's two men standing on either side of him. They knew one was Moses, representing the law, and the other was Elijah, representing the prophets, standing next to him. And they're talking. And what are they talking about? His decease, his exodus, out. And then while they're watching, Peter, who, when he didn't know what to say, always said, Oh, Lord, should we make uh, Moses and Elijah a house? And as if God was basically saying to Peter, Shut up. God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But what Peter remembered most was the voice of God. It had cut into his soul. Such a voice is the way he described it. The voice had come down from the excellent glory, excellent meaning magnificence, majesty, that is becoming to somebody who's very great. Excellent. It was an amazing voice. He never forgot it. Yes, real people were on that mountain. And they heard a real voice. And it came from a real place. And Peter was recounting real facts, not fables. Are you with me, church? Now, Peter comes to the point. He's going to close out with the Word of God. He says, even though such an experience was glorious, read what he says next with me. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Well, what does that mean? Even though such spiritual experiences were incredible and life-changing, they cannot be compared to the Word you're holding in your hand. Do you get it, church? No matter, I don't care what glorious experiences spiritually God gives you, they cannot be compared to the Word you're holding in your hand. He calls it a more sure word of prophecy, prophecy, the Word of God. He said, this book you've been given is more valuable than all your spiritual experiences. It's more certain, more sure. He, he's not saying spiritual experiences aren't great, but he's saying you've got something better in your hand. While Peter was quite sure that his extraordinary and spirit, supernatural encounter with the unseen world was real, he was equally sure that we have a far stronger word of prophecy in God's written word. So he points his readers to the Scriptures. And here's what he says. Which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Oh, church, listen. Let God be true and every man a liar. I don't care what your experiences tell you. If they don't line up with the Word of God, throw it out. If they line up with the Word of God, wonderful. But this Word is the more sure Word of prophecy. You can walk on it, stand on it, live by it, die by it. Look how he describes it. It's a light shining in a dark place. This word is a light shining in a dark place. The word for dark here is intriguing. When he says dark, uses dark, dark place, it's very descriptive. It comes from a word that signifies a drought produced by excessive heat. He's describing our world. It means dry, parched, squalid. It signifies something murky and dark. This Greek word he used for dark. Dry, parched, squalid. Doesn't that describe our world? Aren't we watching people all the time self-destructing because they don't find what they're looking for in this world? Do you know that I was listening to an interview by Tom Brady, the top-ranked quarterback in the NFL, just a week ago? He was... He was 
uh, on 60 Minutes. And he said, you know, he said, I've got everything. I've got Super Bowl rings. I've got millions and millions of dollars. But he said, is this all there is? And his interviewer said, what do you mean? He said, I mean, is this all there is? There's got to be more, said Tom Brady. And I thought, I don't care if you've got millions of dollars, fame, fortune, everything this world calls success. If you don't have Christ, it's dry, it's parched, and it's squalid. It's just a fact. It points to the fact that we're in a dry, dark, and dirty world, are we not? Oh, yeah. We desperately need light to keep us from falling into the filth all around us and to stay on the right path. That's why you better read this every day. If you put this word down, here's my soapbox. If you put it down, you will begin to drift. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you begin to drift. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. His word was like a fire shut up in my bones, said Jeremiah. When you put this word down and get away from it, get, get so busy with life that you don't have time for God, you're going to drift. We need his word every day for light and to keep us on the right path. Peter ends this word on an optimistic note. He said, this dark place, this dry, squalid world, isn't going to be dark forever. A new day is soon to dawn. Here's the verse, chapter 1, verse 19, until the day dawns and the day star rises in your hearts. You know the title day star means the light bringer. When he, the, the, he's using a noun there. The day star is not talking about a thing. He's talking about a person. And the person is the light bringer. So who do you think he's talking about? Jesus Christ. The last title of Jesus Christ in the Bible, in the book of Revelations, is the bright and morning star. Jesus' first coming was described by John this way, quote, In him was life, and that life was what, everyone? The light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus was a light. He was the day star. He was the morning light. The second coming of Christ is going to be exactly the same. The nighttime will be over and day will dawn at last. The darkness will be chased away, banished forever from this world. And Peter closes talking about the inspiration or the source of Scripture. And let's look at this as we close. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, this means the Bible did not come to us from the minds of men. Where did it come from? For prophecy, this word, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were, what everyone, moved by the Holy Spirit. The Bible is no more the product of the will of man than, it, than is the new birth. It is not the product of human thoughts, genius, cleverness, or study. Holy men of old were moved by the Holy Ghost. The word moved is the Greek word pharaoh, pharaoh meaning born along. Let me give you an example of what that means. The same word is used by Luke to describe the final stages of the shipwreck of the boat that was taking Paul as a prisoner to Rome. Look at what Acts says. And when the ship was caught, records Luke in the book of Acts, as the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven or born along Pharaoh. We were borne along or driven by the wind. This is how God gave to us the Bible. Holy men of old sat down, pen in hand, to write a letter or record a historical event or phrase a song. And what happened? Suddenly, the Holy Spirit of God took hold of them, caught them up, and bore them along. That's the idea. Isn't that powerful? Now, do they go into a trance and go into automatic writing? No. No, no, no. Watch this. They were not just dictating machines. They revealed their individual distinctive personalities. You can tell Jeremiah when you read him. You can tell Isaiah when you read him. You can tell Peter when you read him. You can tell Paul when you read him. Once you get familiar with them. 
They kept their distinctive personalities, their dialects, their vocabularies, and their pattern of thought. Yet the Spirit of God controlled every word. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God breathed all Scripture. These men sat down, Holy Spirit came upon them, and bore them along like a boat being driven by a wind with its sails up. Bore them along. He ensured that every jot, every tittle were the words he wanted expressed. You have in here the Word of God. When it was finished, the Bible was something hewn out of the living rock, something more permanent than time itself. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my Word will never pass away. The Bible is made of the very stuff of eternity. Hold it, would you? Look at it. This Bible is made of the stuff of eternity. The Holy Spirit took them and bore them along, and they wrote, This book came to us from heaven. It's infallible, it's inerrant, it's infinite, and it's indestructible. I don't worship the Bible. I worship the God of the Bible. But I'm so thankful for the Bible. There are times I have kissed this Bible. So moved by it, I've kissed these pages. That may seem strange to you, but these promises are so precious, exceedingly great. This Word has saved us from hell, told you the truth, Direct your steps. We could have a kiss the Bible session, but then rumors would really get out. <laughs> but I'm so thankful for it. Next time, we're going to talk about those who have denied the faith and the doctrine of heretics. Can we stand up together? How many of you are thankful for the Word of God? Are you? Amen. Father, we just thank you right now for your precious word. How precious it is, Lord, that every day it's a light to our feet. It guides us and directs us, corrects us, shows us how to live, teaches us of righteousness, warns us of sin. We thank you for the precious word of God and those that gave their lives to get it to us. Thank you that the day star, the Lord Jesus will soon come again and banish darkness forever. And thank you, Lord, that this book is not a book of fables. It's not a book of mythology. But it's a book of facts and truth. Help us, Lord, to honor it in our life. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Can you say with me, thank you for your word, Lord.